Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad that you are here today. That intro video, I think, captures in just one minute the emotional tension that many of us feel in this current climate when we think about politics. In the course of this month, we're looking and leaning into what does it look like to engage this conversation around faith and politics? What is our talking points? And one of the things that would be helpful is to understand how we got to where we are, how the emotional tension, the frustration, the, the outrage, the, the panic that's present on your social media feeds, in the midst of your conversations, how they begin um, in the first place. So in 2008, if you've had this sense of like, this feels different, it's in 2008, 20% of adults in America were on social media. By 2020, there's almost 80% of adults are now on social media. And so where is 2008, that election cycle, there was um, really a majority of American adults weren't engaged with social media. They weren't engaged in the social media conversation. Now a vast majority of adults are present on the social media platform. On top of that, a recent poll uh, that came out a few weeks ago made this startling find that 40% of people from each political group know no one at all who supports the other candidates. 40%. And just in case you're encouraged, because there's still 60%, most of those 60% remaining only had a few people in their life who had a view that was opposing kind of their political spectrum. And I think, honestly, probably most of those 60% who have a few people could be dismissed because most of those people are related to someone who has a different political opinion. Those are the people at Thanksgiving that you try to sit on the other end of the table from. Those are the cousins that you block in your Facebook feed because you're tired of seeing what they're saying or what they're posting or what they're retweeting. That most of us live disconnected from the other side. And what this does in this climate of 20%, now 80% of adults engaged in social media, and yet when we are in social media, when we are watching the news, we are surrounded by nothing but outrage. I don't know if you've noticed that there's been this uptick in the way anger seems to be everywhere. Anger, passion, frustration, disgust. It's because partially anger really sells well. Social media research has shown that if an angry rant will go so much further than a thoughtful post. No one wants to hear your thoughtful engagement about whatever the cultural issue is. What they want to see is your anger. What they want to see is your disgust, your frustration uh, about those morons or those idiots. And all of this by itself would be increasingly challenging in the year that we find ourselves in. But mixed in all of that is an explosive element that we call SARS-CoV-2 or the diagnosis of COVID-19. And this is one of the most latest um, kind of renderings of this device. And this is where like my biochem side gets really nerded out. So that's why I had to put it up here. This is every atom that every atom has been modeled in this thing. And it's sort of stunning when you see it up close. And it's just like, wow. Anyway, so that was kind of a nerd kick. But that this thing mixed into all the other things has elevated and escalated the a, this, this outrage, this frustration. Because what this has done has set into motion six or seven months of a very tumultuous period where 
human beings have been disconnected from one another. The serendipitous conversations that you would have had around, you know, the coffee maker at your workplace doesn't happen anymore. And that even when you go out in public, one of the most instinctive aspects of how we engage social interactions has been taken away from us through masks. That what we end up having is kind of this disconnected, decoupled, dehumanized culture that is pushed us further into what social scientists have called our echo chambers. This was um, a, kind of a, a graphical representation of a research project that was done where they mapped people's social networks. Um, they looked at their links, at their connections, at what they posted, what they tweeted, and what they found as they mapped it out was that there were two distinct different pockets. The red for the Republican, the blue for the Democratic, and that if just a glance at this graphical image shows us that there's Inside of the red circle, there's not much blue. And inside of the blue circle, there's not much red. So what happens is you, in fact, what I did to illustrate it is I actually went and pulled some of your social media posts, some of your, um, some of the things that you've said on message boards. Um, the internet's not anonymous. It's far more public. And so I've actually kind of grouped some of us into these different chambers and have uh, so that you can kind of illustrate for us how, um, you know, when we're over here, we can, let me put the, the MAGA post up. <laughs> just, just joking. I'm kidding. I don't have any of your, but then you get a little afraid. You got a little afraid. You can be honest. If you got afraid, this message is for you. Right? So anyways, back over here. So like, you know, it, over here, you're really frustrated with the president. You've um, got this kind of really simple caricature of, of an individual who voted for Trump with their Make America Great hat again. And, um, or maybe it's Mike Pence and, you know, the fly. And you're like, you know, ready to like just blast that out because you're going to show those idiots um, how they should really think about this. And then you post it and it goes viral. Not really. It just kind of bounces around in your little blue world. Or maybe you're over here and you just want, you want to tweet about fracking. You want to like let everyone know what the Green New Deal is going to do to us. And you want to let everyone know about Joe Biden's 47 years in the swamp. And this is finally going to persuade all those like liberal friends over there that you don't even have to turn to Trump. And so you, you put this kind of angry, demoralizing post and you tweet it out or you, you post it or you Instagram story and maybe even TikTok it a little bit and it doesn't go anywhere. It stays in your little circle. And what happens, the detrimental effect of this is that these operate like feedback loops because Facebook, Twitter, all of these entities are for profit along with the news agencies and they are financially incentivized to get you to stay on their platform, to view their ads so that they can make money. And so what have they found? What's true about humans is that we are moved by, a, we are moved by outrage. We're moved by frustration. We're emotionally charged and responsive. And it's a whole lot easier to sell advertisement to people who are angry and frustrated and disgusted than it is to someone who's reflective, who's been pensive and kind of trying to think through an issue. And so these feedback loops created even more intense 
circle, this even more intense kind of bounce back. And it increases our age, it, increase our, it increases our outrage, it increases our disconnect. And then added to a year where we're wearing masks, where we're not even interacting with human beings that much, we find ourselves in a place where we just completely disconnect from the other side. And we find ourselves only watching one news network. We find ourselves only reading certain websites. We see the same people being popped up on our feeds with the same outrage that they had the day before. And look, everybody on social media is making a point, but rarely any of them are making a difference. So what do we do? What do we do to break from this cage of outrage that ultimately is created by living in these echo chambers? Because make no mistake, those echo chambers are cages. And in this climate, with all those factors and even more, this is a cage of outrage. Now, the talking point that I want to kind of work through really is going to span two weeks because I want to be mindful of how thoughtful and nuanced we, we should be as we discuss it. But there's really kind of a two-parter. And today I want to kind of deal with the first part of our talking point of how do we respond, how do we break free from the cage of outrage. But I thought it would be helpful for us to have a little global perspective. In 2018, uh, for those who follow kind of global news, you would have known that um, Indian and Pakistani um, tensions were beginning to rise. There was over 400 border kind of excursion violations around Kashmir just in the first two months of 2018. And what this did was this kind of, um, kind of caused an escalation of tensions between these two um, powerful states with um, standing militaries and nuclear arsenal. And so you've got harassment. The diplomats are where it really starts to show up. You have um, diplomats who are supposed to be typically engaging in each other, right? The very word diplomatic means that it's peaceful and it's reasonable. And here's this diplomatic exchange, and it's filled with harassment. It's filled with um, kind of systematic oppression and kind of like targeting they're even making harassing phone calls. And to top it off, it, it, it escalates to this shocking level where you have diplomats from both sides ringing each other's doorbells in the middle of the night and running away. Yes, diplomats were ding-dong ditching other diplomats. I mean, could you imagine, right, like the, the news tonight and there's a video of Mike Pence and the fly sneaking up to Kamala Harris's house and ding-dong ditching and running off and her opening the door and being like, what happened? And he's like, <laughs> and the fly's like, I get such a buzz from that, right? Like, I mean, imagine that. Or maybe it's Joe Biden and there's the camera and he's kind of crawling through the bushes and he ding-dong ditches Donald Trump. And, you know, the president opens the door of the White House and he's like, who was it? Was it you, Pensy? Was it you, the fly? Right? Like, I mean, imagine if that's what we were into right now. You see, the story of what I shared with India and Pakistan and the tensions they have, I could give you countless other stories. You see, this isn't a U.S. problem. This is an us problem. This is a human problem. And that I want to take you to a very simple sentence that can have significant impact in your life that can transform, I think, not just you, but the climate around you. It's a key to get out of the cage of outrage. And it's found in the book of Proverbs, which was a book written 
by King Solomon, a majority of it, for the sake of developing his children because they were one day going to take over the kingdom. So this is leadership preparation. This is um, administration preparation. This is you're going to have the entire world handed to you, and I want you to know what to do with it when it happens. And so there's a whole series of themes that are throughout the book of Proverbs, and one of the themes is the one reflected in this passage in Proverbs 18, too. It says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. This is a simple sentence that would have been easy to memorize because while we're reading it in English, it was written in a different language. And the language that it was written in is actually far shorter. The sentence is far shorter than what it took me to read for you. In fact, in the original language of what, what Solomon would have said to his kids, it's a little easier to pick up what he's trying to communicate in the midst of this sentence. He essentially lays out for his children two different paths of responding and interacting with people. Because as the king, as the queen, as as leaders in a a royal court, you meet people who are not like you all the time. In fact, to be a king or part of the royal court in the ancient day, the us versus them, you had a very small us and there was a significantly large them because no one knew what it was like to be you if you were royal. It was completely different. It's far more of a separation than any separation that we currently have in our class structures today. And so Solomon's trying to help his kids understand this simple point. And the original language gives you a little insight. He says understanding. It's this sense of like an intellectual, thoughtful empathy is what he's trying to communicate. Like that fools take no pleasure in empathizing. There's there's no presence of empathy in their fool's life. Instead, what they have present in their life, and this word, in airing, so everything after the word but, there's hardly any more words. The primary word is there's this two words put together that's this really significant large word. And it, and it gets to the light and the airing of your own opinions. The word, first one is um, this idea of revealing. It's the same word used for nakedness in um, the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. Um, is so this idea of like completely flaunting and flashing your, not opinions, your emotional outburst. See, what he's trying to highlight is there is empathy and there is emotion. Those are our two responses to how we respond to someone who's different, to something else that's different. Now, this is, again, a human problem. And so how, how has humans sought to navigate this very ancient problem that's still present in the present world? Well, One idea that was kind of born in the last thousand years was, well, the answer is education. If we educated people, then we would naturally drift towards this better place. But what Solomon's trying to communicate here, the reason he says this is he knows that the default is not empathy. The default is emotional outburst. The default is to speak without thinking. The default is to feel our opinions, not form our opinions. The default is not empathy, it's emotion. And education doesn't fix that. 
the idea of university, the word university actually comes from etymologically this idea that we can achieve unity out of diversity of thought. The university, this place of education, was meant to facilitate and form unity, but it doesn't, does it? What they've found in sociological experiments is that education doesn't fix polarization. It just makes it more polarized. They've found, as they've exposed different individuals and different experiments to to opposing viewpoints, that all your education does is make you more confident about your opinion, not necessarily more thoughtful in forming your opinion. Education has failed us. And that most of us, without even recognizing, because of the default that's present in all of us, most of us don't even know that most of the opinions that, that creep into our life are not formed, they're felt. Which probably offends you a little bit, but I just said to you that many of the opinions that you have were not formed thoughtfully, they were felt emotionally. But you see, this has actually been demonstrated. Um, actually, the frustration that maybe you felt when I said it is actually kind of part of how Proverbs works. Proverbs, in some ways, were meant to be a trap. It was meant to, to kind of get you from the side and all of a sudden leave you offended and say, I'm not a fool. Because no one who reads this passage thinks and sees in this passage themselves as the fool. You're not a fool, of course. They're a fool. Their viewpoints, they're foolish. But not you. This is something actually we exploit in a good way with our daughter. You see, every single night we read a proverb. And one of the things that she likes to do, because Proverbs are very practical and they were part of our parenting format and how we engage our daughter and help to form her, um, is she's, uh, she likes to act the Proverbs out because a lot of the Proverbs are kind of extreme. So they're um, really kind of fun to act out. So she'll kind of get this stuffed animal and she'll get this stuffed animal and they'll kind of like bound out and they'll say something ridiculous or they'll do something ridiculous. And she'll illustrate and highlight for us in the midst of her stuffed animals them being foolish, or them being simple, or them being unwise, or being wise. And it's, it's humorous. We laugh because she gets to make up the story, and her stuffed animals are over the top and really dramatic. I mean, it's like really, like it'd be a really funny YouTube channel. Um, and, and what happens is often in the week that follows or the weeks that follow, we'll have a moment where Proverbs comes up. Not the proverb itself, but the situation the proverb talked about. And we'll say something like, when it happens, like, Ella, do you realize in that moment they were acting like sassy, your stuffed animal, right, or whatever. And, and sometimes it's like, Ella, you're, you're acting like City Kitty right now. Remember when City Kitty responded to, you know, Jeremy the giraffe and that moment around that argument about Polly the, you know, pineapple? Remember that dispute, right? Like, you're kind of being city kitty right now. She's like, oh my goodness, I'm totally being city kitty right now. And so this is one of the ways that Proverbs works is that it catches you off guard because story is an amazing way and, and illustrations about the other are an amazing way that we kind of hold a mirror up to ourselves. And so you can find this tendency even in the midst when I said that most of the opinions that are in our lives oftentimes weren't formed, they were felt. And an example of this is a psychological study that was done um, that was brought people into a room and they were given a series of articles laying out evidence for the dangers of caffeine, the certain health risk. And um, 
Zuva Kuda actually kind of published this report, and it was so insightful because what they found was there were two different reactions to the evidence laid out about the health, potential health risk of um, excess caffeine in our lives, specifically through coffee, right? They found that most subjects would just accept the evidence. Most subjects would kind of see the evidence as compelling. But there was one group that rejected the argument, rejected the article, and it was the group of people who drank a lot of coffee. Now, same evidence, same exposure, same everything about the experiment. The only difference is what you drank that morning on the way to that experiment. And if you drank coffee, you felt an opinion that was different than what the others did. And that there are countless examples of this type of response scattered throughout psychological research because the human reaction, the default, is that without us even thinking about, we feel our way through life. We feel that our spouse meant that. We feel that they overlooked us or this is just another example. I feel this is just another moment. Right? Watch the news and we just feel another reason that they don't have a clue. And see, what works against this is this other little piece of um, thing that's true about us. It's been called the fundamental attribution error. And the idea of the fundamental attribution error is this, in that when we make a mistake, when we mess up, when we do something wrong, we tend to attribute our, our slip-ups, our screw-ups to circumstances. Well, I cut them off because I was running late. I cut them off because I was trying to get home because I, I promised my kids I would do this. Or, you know, I, I said that because I, I woke up late that morning and I was really stressed out. And the fundamental attribution error says that where things, where your slip-ups and screw-ups are circumstantial, when others slip up or screw up, it's a character issue. So drive down the road, the person who cuts you off, were they running late for work? No, they're a moron who needs to go back to school to learn how to drive. And we even give them one-finger waves sometimes to illustrate that point, right? What's circumstantial for us is character for them. I forgot. That was the circumstance. I was busy. But the character, character, well, you just don't care. You don't, don't, don't value me. It's like, and what's fascinating is that we all, we all want circumstantial grace applied to us in our moments, but we don't give it to others in their moments. We make it about character. We make it about an issue with them. Not what happened that week. And man, I'm telling you, if we just clicked that in and extended to people what we extend to ourselves regularly, it would transform most of the relationships we're in. If we were willing to give them and extend to them and give them the, the courtesy of assuming the best, it would transform a relationship. One of the things that's a really red flag for me when I see a relationship is when people stop assuming the best. When they assume the worst, not the best. And that that is a, a subtle but significant warning sign that there's something wrong with the relationship. 
And most of us, if we were being honest in our assessment, if we looked at our marriage, if we looked at how we treat our kids, if we looked at our coworkers or our friends or family members, or if we looked at Democrats or if we looked at Republicans, and we assumed the best, it would change and, and unlock many of the cages that we find ourselves in. And that this fundamental attribution error, just being aware that it's there, oftentimes is helpful. But what Solomon's trying to communicate is just being aware. This can feel so big. But reality is just being aware that it's there can be enough to help you get out of the cage. If you stop and you reflect, how am I feeling right now? How does this make me feel? That sometimes is just enough to let you shut up and not say what you're about to say or not post what you're about to post. But see... Social media companies, news outlets, our really angry friends, they don't want you to stop and think. They want you to hurry up and feel. Because hurry up, and, hurry up feel is, is the avenue and the stream that we default to. And if we're going to be people, if we're going to be people who reflect a different way, a better way, then we're going to stop and we're going to pause, especially when we have a moment that makes us to hurry up and feel. Realizing that that's working against us. But it's not just noticing our emotions. There's also the empathy. You see, when you find yourself uttering this phrase, I don't know how anyone could support Trump. I don't understand how anyone could be a Biden supporter. I don't understand how anyone could ever cheer for the Yankees. Well, that's actually true. So, never mind, bad example. Right, like, like, but the other two are good, right? I don't understand how anyone could think that. Oftentimes, we say that phrase as an indictment against them. And it's actually an indictment against us. Because what we're actually saying is it's not their ignorance on display when we make that phrase, when we say that phrase. It's our ignorance. Your ignorance, my ignorance is on display when I say out loud, I don't understand how anyone can support Trump, or I don't understand how anyone can support Biden. Because the person who does support Trump or the person who does support Biden, they know very clearly why they do that. It's not an ignorance on their part. It's an ignorance on yours. Now, maybe you disagree with it, and that's okay. But when you say that phrase, it's, it's revealing to you that you're not practicing empathy. You're operating out of emotion. And that this isn't a call to just say, you know, don't have opinions, don't have thoughtful, formed um, kind of convictions around certain things. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying what the world needs more is empathy than emotional responses. What the, the world needs more is slow down and think than hurry up and feel. What the world needs more than ever is people who are willing to not just walk across the aisle, but understand what, what brought someone to that aisle in the first place. Because the fundamental attribution error is always at work in us. The default of emotions, our own opinions, uh, uh, airing our own formed, felt thoughts, it's always going to creep in. I've, um, one of the things that happened to me when I became a Christian, so growing up, um, people would kind of pick on me and um, call me a little know-it-all and really hated that. And 
But when you get called a know-it-all, it's really hard to argue back without like just further reinforcing the know-it-all label. And one of the amazing things that happened to me um, was I became a Christian. And, and honestly, becoming a Christian radically oriented, not just the way I lived, but it oriented the way I thought and how I processed. I wasn't as quick to demonize and villainize. And actually, one of the habits that started to form as I studied the life of Jesus was how Jesus seemed to value people who didn't value what he valued. Jesus seemed to treat people the same even when they were different from him. That Jesus seemed to salt out the people that most people rejected and dismissed. And it caused me to embrace what I would call in the midst of that echo chamber, this purple lifestyle. Now, it also sometimes makes me lonely um, when it comes to my political views because I don't occupy either one of those camps fully. Because I think Christianity makes it really hard to, to wave a flag without first bearing the cross. And that bearing the cross means that like Jesus did for me, he stepped into my world so that he could help me move into his world. And that that posture, that passion demonstrated on the cross, I think is meant to creep into all of our lives. And so I I enjoy seeking out people and sitting down with them and asking them to tell me their story and how they arrived at such a passionate viewpoint that would be diametrically opposed to how I understand the world. I've spent time in Buddhist monks um, in Thailand. I've spent time with imams trying to understand how someone growing up in an Islamic worldview would think the way they think. Now, am I sitting down with them? Is my conversation with them an endorsement of what they believe? Is it a rejection of what I believe? No. Jesus could spend time with people who value things differently than how he valued them, and it did not call into question his values. It made them feel more valuable. We all have a story. All of us have a story. And what we desperately desire to do is share that story, to be known. And I think as Christians that there's something unique about what we have and what we get to do. Because all of us would agree, I don't want to be a fool. And everything I've said up until this point will help you not be a fool. But if you're a Christian, I think the goal in our life is not to not be a fool. The central talking point that we want to demonstrate is that we follow Christ. And in following Jesus, we become like him more and more and more. And if the God of the universe could step into our world so that we might be able to glimpse his world, I think we can have a conversation, engage with people, respect people, even value people who don't value the things we value. That it's one of the most distinctive elements of Christian love is not how we treat those who are like us and our friends. That Jesus said that one of the distinctives of Christian love would be how we treat those who are our enemies. Whether there are political enemies, there are thought enemies, there are religious enemies, fill in the blank. If they are opposed to what you are for, if they are against what you are for, then you can call them an enemy. And if you're a Christian, it means it's a call to love them too. And oftentimes what you'll find is that there are amazing things 
There are beautiful stories behind and around people who have radically different ways of seeing the world. And you aren't going to compromise your convictions just by beginning to listen and have a conversation around theirs. If anything, you might have an opportunity to get to know each other better and for someone to walk away and say, you know what, I'm, I don't really like the church, but I really, I really like Jesus, and now I like you. I think one of the highest compliments is to live out our life in such a way. I used to hear an old gospel kind of, um, Kurt Franklin, actually one of his songs, I always was moved by it. He's like, there are five gospels, and a gospel is a biographical account of the life of Jesus. And um, the irony is that the, you know, there's actually four biographical accounts in the New Testament um, or Christian scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he said, no, there are actually five. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. You're the fifth gospel. And to recognize that people can glimpse Jesus through you and I and the way that we can engage them, even around potential like difficult conversations, is a privilege we have. And so let the world live in their cage of outrage. But let's, as Christians, not just make our goal not to be a fool, but let our goal be to follow Jesus. And Jesus leads us out of cages of outrage into other people's cages to understand what took them there in the first place and to reflect him in the process.